Hey there, it's Guy here. Welcome to another special episode of Creative Forces, this time looking back at the best of episodes 6 to 10. Back in episode 8, I spoke to the DJ and author Dave Haslam, and during our conversation about his life and career, he told me why he chose as the title of his memoir, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor. Yeah, I mean, there could have been other, yeah, I guess could have, um, Nile Rogers ate my sushi, <laughs> yeah. which he also did. Morrissey uh, drank your tea. Yeah, uh, cooking cauliflower cheese for Morrissey and <laughs> other stories. Um, well, one, I think, um, uh, to me, it, it, I like the title because it wasn't um, Manchester-oriented. And I didn't want the book's appeal um, to be limited to an audience who are interested in Manchester music because that audience will absolutely love the book, mm. but also so will other people. So I didn't want to be in that kind of pigeonhole. But also I, I kind of felt it was quite abstract, really, mm. um, because although Sonic Youth are a kind of I- or were an iconic band and you know, had great influence on Nirvana, etc. Um, I think there will be people who actually Sonic Youth just sounds like uh, some kind of craze or mm. trend or abstract idea. You know, we are the Sonic Youth, like we are the mobs or mm. something. Hmm. Um, and thirdly, <laughs> thereby <laughs> undermining my whole point about bullet points. <laughs> yeah. Third, this is the third of five. Third, third <laughs> of three, I think, unless I think of another one halfway through the next sentence. Yep. Um, you've put me off now. <laughs> uh, no, also, what, what the, the point of that title is that a lot of the stuff that I write about is about me... Um, being around things or involved in things uh, in their early years. And that absolutely fascinates me. And um, so the idea of, I mean, I am one of those people that loves that, loves seeing bands in small venues, you know, hearing DJs and, and or, or, or rumours of films or ideas that are bubbling under the surface all that fascinates me, and so the Sonic Youth thing is the idea that that actually it still happens all the time, doesn't it? People get into things, and uh, at the, in the very beginnings, it's kind of quite chaotic and mundane, and it's just you're in a band and you need to sleep on somebody's floor because mm. you can't afford a hotel, and lots of bands do that, and and you know, th- and and lots of ideas start off like that. And for me, that was the that's often the most interesting part of the story. But it's certainly the, the kinds of stories I write about a lot in the book. So the fact that it, it's almost like a what happened next. As soon as mm. kind of Sonic Youth wake up in the morning and get in the van and drive to Holland, I stop being interested in yeah. that. Um, I mean, I don't, but you know, in, in another way I do because it, it's just such an intense thing. And I don't think I went like uh, after they uh, after they kind of broke quite big. I don't think I went to see them, you know. And it wasn't because I didn't like them. It was just kind of I'd moved on, they'd moved on. Mm. I, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, you know. And it just 
I'd been through that intense thing with them. So it's also that idea, I think the, the title's meant to get across that, that idea that throughout the book there are seeds being sown. Yeah. Yeah, that's very obvious in the book, isn't it? I mean, another example being the sort of Stone Roses gig with the, the Gallagher's at it. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And it is actually, thinking back now to the book, it is very, and thinking back to the fanzine and what you just said about you know, the alternative eventually becomes the mainstream. Mm. That is something that you're really interested in, is the, the very beginnings of, of a new thing. Yeah, um, and also the fact that that can be kind of accidental, like you mentioned the Gallagher's, you know. Mm. So I, I need to raise, at that point, I need to raise money for the Anti-Clause 28, w uh, which was a kind of um, homophobic piece of legislation that the government were putting through. And the Stone Roses played the gig um and you know it, it was only it's only in the last few months that i've become aware that liam gallagher talks about that gig as the moment where he wanted to basically be like ian brown mm. uh, and it's also the same night noel gallagher met one of the inspiral carpets and became part of the music industry so it's a kind of it's like an accidental mm. um seed being sown and I mean, another example is Laurent Garnier, who is, you know, a, a great DJ. And, and having spent a lot of time in Paris, I realize how influential he has been in the Paris scene, you know, for the last 25 years. Um, and he talks about walking into the Hacienda as, a, as like the pivotal moment of his life. Mm. You know, so if the Hacienda hadn't existed, everything that Laurent has done in his own career and in the Paris music scene might not have happened either. So it's kind of, um, it's, uh, what I don't know really is how you, if like me, you believe that culture is something that happens in small underground, undercapitalized cells of people, like-minded people getting together and, and a bit weird and doing things a bit differently. Mm. Um, and that stuff will happen. You know, so Sonic Youth will become big. Uh, the Stone Roses will become, all that will happen. And, uh, you know, and the writers that I talk about in the films and Carol Morley, the filmmaker who's in the book in a very, very early on before she's had got any idea she's going to be a filmmaker. So yeah. all those people, I believe that that's kind of how culture works best. And obviously there are other people who think that you kind of open big cultural emporia like opera houses and mm. arts art spaces and stuff so um but for me it's very much about that kind of grassroots and and those and those like-minded people mm. so so in a way i wanted to write about that i wanted to really try and push that um as an idea without it becoming kind of some kind of abstract thing mm. In episode seven, I spoke to the food waste entrepreneur, Tessa Cook, and during our conversation, she told me about the moment she came up with the idea for her smartphone app, Olio. I remember sort of having one of those classic shower moments, thinking, <laughs> hang on a minute, you know, uh, the world does not need another photo sharing app or another e-commerce proposition. It really, really doesn't. <laughs> Why don't I use my time to solve a real problem? Mm. And in that sort of same second... I thought, well, what are real problems? Well, healthcare. I don't know. I'm in no way equipped to solve any healthcare problems. Education. I don't know the first thing about education. Um, so I quickly discounted those as two big obvious problem areas. And then bizarrely, this sort of stat popped into my head, which I 
probably had heard on the radio or read in a newspaper weeks or months before that a third of all the food we produce gets thrown away. Mm. Uh, and that stat somehow came back into my head and I was like, hang on a minute, that sounds like a pretty big problem <laughs> that we're throwing away a third of all the food we produce. And you know, my parents are farmers, so why don't, why don't I sort of look into that? And so at the time I was working with a very good friend of mine and also my now co-founder, Sasha. And so we started working actually on this concept, on the concept of waste more generally, and could we build a global B2B marketplace for waste? And so um, you, were you just friends at the time? Yeah. Uh, did you meet in, in, uh, well, in, in the Well, I met at business school. So yeah. how did you first meet then? Uh, so at business school, sort of what must be now, in the same lectures 12 or... years ago. Yeah, at Stanford, there was only a sort of relatively small class of about 360 people. So you knew everybody. And um, yeah, so we knew each other. We weren't super close at business school, but we knew each other fairly well we our relationship really developed when we moved back to london after business school and um uh we both lived in the same area of north london and so we would see each other kind of every week and so was you did you know at that point that she was keen to start her own so on our so we did our first maternity leave together at the same time and we'd worked on a a project to solve a problem that was very real for us at that time which was when you change a baby um on sort of a changing table if you're not careful they can roll off um and so we sort of came up with this baby sort of safety barrier thing that you could sort of clip onto any surface to transform it into a safe baby changing station uh, and we sort of worked on that project during our first maternity leave and it was fun but i think we both realized that it wasn't super scalable and it wasn't our life passion she then went on to found my crash which is north london's first page go high street childcare solution where you can just sort of drop off your child um, for a couple of hours or, or a day and um, through that process she had got the entrepreneurial bug knew that she loved it but realized quite quickly that childcare doesn't scale hmm. so then when i was on my second maternity leave and going through all these ideas and I'd come up with this sort of concept of solving the problem of waste more broadly i told her about that she loved it immediately got it and was like yeah let's sort of work on that together so so that was just in a sort of you're just having a chat rather than just rather than actually sort of saying i've got an idea oh yeah yeah no no it was just doing yeah no it was just doing a chat actually initially it was myself and my friend maria who were working on this because i can remember thinking um you know who else do i know who works in the digital world and who sort of you know wants to make change happen and this and i was like hang on why don't i just reach out to maria and see if she wants to do something so what was she doing at that time she had some i can't remember where she was at that time she had some fairly sort of high-flying corporate career in the digital space um and so she and i agreed to start working together i knew she wanted to do something entrepreneurial and i was just like Henry, it makes no sense for us both to be separately working on our entrepreneurial ideas we should work together mm. um and so we started doing that. And then I told Sasha about what Maria and I were doing. And she was like, oh, my God, I want to be part of that. So the three of us were working uh, on this concept of a global B2B marketplace for waste. We spent about a month maybe researching that. And it was, I'll never forget, so with such heavy hearts, we had this call where we realized that actually this was just not going to work. It was not a feasible opportunity. And we were so depressed because none of us wanted to um go back and sort of get 
proper jobs. Why was it not a feasible opportunity? Or why uh, did you think at that point it wasn't? It, it, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember all the reasonings, but essentially I think we just felt that the market was not yet ready to be digitized um, in that way because it was about building a marketplace and actually a marketplace to work you need kind of fragmented supply and fragmented demand and um, was there a marketplace already for it no there isn't it's all done it's all sort of done offline um, so very informal I I think we that was right so we there was lots of waste being generated but there weren't actually yet sufficient people on the other side to absorb that waste um yep. and so i there was half of the marketplace but there wasn't the other half of the marketplace so the supply it. was there but not the demand not the demand yeah. yeah and so we felt it was too early to build a two-sided marketplace there so we decided not to do that um we were very depressed we didn't want to go back and get proper jobs and then i went upstairs to put my little girl down for a nap and i went back to Sasha and I said Sasha I have had this other really crazy idea don't laugh (laughs) but and I told her the story of how I was moving country from living in Geneva back to the UK and on moving day the removal men said you need to toss away all that food and I was like no way and so I stopped packing and much their irritation and I sort of gathered the food and my kids and set out onto the streets to find someone to give this food to I failed I got very over emotional that I'd gone to all this effort and have failed and I thought about knocking on my neighbor's doors and I was like that's inefficient and even if they do answer it'll be really awkward and embarrassing because they don't know me and they might not want it Mm. so I ended up sort of putting the non-perishable stuff sort of sneaking it into my packing boxes and thinking great I'm probably you know committing a criminal offense or something now this is crazy why isn't there an app for that why can't i share my food via an app why do you think you were so bothered at that time that you you didn't because a lot of people waste. would have just left the food and i said, hate right, food see waste food. bye-bye i hate i hate food waste and i also know that a lot of people leave food saying oh the cleaners will take it it's like the cleaners don't necessarily want all of your random food um you know what, what you're assuming that they have the same food taste as you that they have got completely empty fridges and suddenly can deal with this deluge of food so so and i thought that's not fair that's just sort of passing my problem on to someone else um so I where do you to... think that comes from that well, hate, I, th- so I think people don't like i think people don't like wasting food in general and that's why people do say oh I'll leave it for the cleaning ladies um because no one really likes throwing away food but I just think that if you leave it for the cleaning ladies, unless you've explicitly discussed it with them and they've made it very clear that they want it, you're probably just passing your problem on to them. And where do you think that comes from for you, that that sort of concern about that particular thing? you know? Because that... uh, I was just always brought up to believe that food is you know, precious and valuable. It's what we need to live and survive um, and that an awful lot of hard work goes into producing it. So it would be criminal to throw it away. The writer and director Keith Farrell spoke to me uh, in episode 10 and he told me about his early career in sports journalism. So when I left school at 18, I didn't go into university. I did a course at um, one of the, what we call them here in the UK, colleges. It's, hmm. uh, they're slightly called Collage de Dulig in journalism. And then thanks to that course, I got to work for my local newspaper. And um, although I'm... De- uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm um, I'm dyslexic, uh, but my the editor noticed something in me. Thankfully, a guy called um, Tony Moore noticed something in me, and 
they didn't have a sports page in that. It's a local newspaper. It's called the North Side. This is in Dublin. In Dublin, yeah. yeah. So I got to work at my local newspaper in Dublin. Sorry, yeah, I'm from Dublin. So I went I went to Clash to Dulac, uh, came out, and I got work experience in my local newspaper called the North Side People, which is a brilliant local Dublin paper. And they didn't have a sports section. And Tony Moore, the editor there, saw something in me um, and gave me an opportunity to write um, uh, about Gaelic football which is uh, an Irish kind of cross between, I suppose, soccer and rugby. Mm. And so I started writing Gaelic football uh, for them. And uh, I also then, because you're as a freelance journalist, you kind of write whatever you get. So I, I wrote for magazines. I, I had a bit of knowledge about IT, so I wrote a tech column. And I just basically did whatever work came along. And then later on, I got picked up as a Gaelic football journalist for another local no- newspaper that's no longer in existence called the Northside Weekender. And I did a little bit of work for the Irish Star newspaper. They had a really good weekly pullout, which was just all about Gaelic football. And so I did a little bit of writing for them and mm. basically wrote for whoever and anyone I could. You know what I mean? Um, and we're, as well as doing tech columns for other newspapers and magazines and the whole thing you do as a freelance journalist. Um, and I then went to university when I was 20, I went to university and uh, did a degree in history and politics. So that's where the history comes from. Why did you decide to do that at that point, by the way? You were already working. So what what was the reason for, what what was the decision for going back to university? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to go at some stage and I had the I had the grades to go immediately, but I just didn't want to go at 18. Okay. So I decided then that it was a good time to go. So that was always the plan in a way, was yeah. to work. I was always going to go to university. Yeah. Yes, sorry. I was always planning to go to university, but it was kind of nice to get, cool job did a yeah. lot of working in a bar yeah. you know what I mean and, you know I had one of the coolest jobs in university I was a journalist yeah but it, it did mean some funny decisions because I, I would schedule classes so that I wouldn't interrupt with me going to football matches later <laughs> on and I love all sport I used to I also did a bit of soccer riding as well mm. um, and then in um, and I also uh, so uh, yeah sorry I was riding as a journalist but I also wasn't I decided I wanted to do a bit of traveling as well so once I finished university um, I went to Canada on our, the Canadian version of the J1 mm. and did a summer in Canada and got a real buzz from it. Buzz from What's really the J1, by the way? The J1 is the um, student visa that allows you to work in America oh, okay. for, for a summer. Right. So there's a Canadian version of that and I got that and, and worked in Toronto for what a summer. What did you do? I was a car park attendant. <laughs> Best job I in ever. In one of those little sort of, um, you know, cubicles. In one of those booths. No, yes. Booth, yeah. That's yeah the well, one. the company I worked for, they... Um, as well as the booths, I did work in a booth. We also had uh, valet parking. Yeah. So I, I valet parked quite a few, quite a lot of cars as well. I, quite, I really enjoyed valet parking as well because it was one of the you know, rare times you're going to get to drive all kinds of cars. Did you get to that stage that, you know, you always see in films where someone tosses you the keys and they know you say, so, you know, put it in the usual spot or whatever. Yeah, there was one guy, who, an Englishman, who drove a Lotus Esprit who <laughs> would give me the keys say, don't get caught doing over 90. That's what he would say when he handed you the wow. keys. Yeah. <laughs> That's an invitation. Yeah, it is. The job. 89. I did. Of course, I didn't take the car off the parking lot. No. <laughs> you didn't do, I didn't nine, do a, anywhere a Ferris near Bueller. I didn't do a Ferris Bueller. You know, at least that's what I'm telling my mother. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a great job, though. There was no responsibility. It was really funny, you know, going from the world of having to get deadlines and having to get everything in. And, you know, mm. and the, you know, when I started in journalism, news, the newspapers were still laid out on, on boards. You know, they weren't. There was the, you know, I, I, I don't think paper i worked for had um any of the front page software that would do that for you um, I, I think i'm pretty sure that if i remember they still laid it out on boards mm. um 
so you'd, you'd go in you with your copy and you'd type it up on the one Mac in the office. You know, like you'd queue journal, people waiting to type it up, freelancers waiting to type it up. <laughs> um, I had emailed, but I, I think the email was, I had emailed personally, but I think the email in the newspaper office was pretty. What year would this be then? This would be 1994. Right. Yeah. So the email was pretty inefficient. Yeah. And so was was ju- just to read um, back. So up I was nineteen. Slightly, I was nineteen when I worked in the. Was in journalism Australia. always the dream then when you were at school? I don't think I knew what I wanted to do in school. To be honest, I really hadn't figured it out. You know, it was a, a kind of. I didn't say I fell into journalism. I think towards the end of the year, my year, my final year in school, when I was studying for my leaving cert, which is the Irish version of the A levels. My granda, who wasn't, who was also in the print business, he'd founded a newspaper, a sports newspaper called the Gaelic. The Gaelic Echo, which was a newspaper that just specialised in Gaelic football and hurling, the other Irish sport. And he had then gone on to found a couple of very successful publishing companies. Um, my granddad was brilliant at setting up businesses. He wasn't so good at running them. Uh, so <laughs> they, they were not... taken on by other people and made successful. Right. <laughs> okay. The Gaelic Echo sadly faded from view, never to be seen again. Right. Um, yeah, so my poor old gran had an up and down existence. One day they were they loads of money the next day they did nothing <laughs> but he he was a real influence, formative influence in my life and he said look if you talk about journalism I think you'd be a really good journalist you're a great storyteller mm. and so I, I kind of was like well, well yeah I'm not really, I don't want to go to university this course at Gloucester Dulux seems really interesting it's not too far from my home it's in Coolock and I, I lived in Rohini at the time which is not far from, from Coolock so I went there and um and yeah and and uh, and I really discovered then that I really enjoyed journalism and I really enjoyed writing. In episode nine, I spoke to Rowan Hoban and Sarah Bird, the founders of the family-friendly festival Just So, and they told me about the difference working outdoors has made to their creativity levels. We thought if there's these all these health and well-being and creativity benefits of being outdoors, then why were we still working in an office? And I think it's only because that's so the norm, isn't it, that you work in office spaces that it doesn't occur to you necessarily to think why aren't I working in the countryside? I mean, obviously it's a beautiful place. Everybody knows that. So mm. so why aren't we all there a little bit more? And I think there's something about modern technology liberating us and allowing us to be able to work anywhere. You know, we don't. We no longer need to go to a place where there's a, a computer and all of that office equipment and stuff. You know, we can take our devices with us and work in a woodland, up a mountain, down the canal, where, wherever at the beach. And I think a lot of that kind of working in towns and cities always. That's where all offices tend to be based, and what kind of the places of work is less about the practicalities now and more about that kind of tradition of it, and people feeling like that's the sense of what that's how it happens. I mean. Um, like Sarah said, it's you know you've got your laptop in your backpack and you really can be anywhere. And this is where we wanted to be. And I think it it it, it as soon as we moved in here, as soon as we started working here, it just changed the way we worked. So yeah, I was going to say, has it made a big difference to what you do and how you, the sort of outcomes of what you're yeah. doing? Yeah, yeah. I think, and it's it's slightly intangible things, but there's a definite sense that it has made all of our conversations and general kind of attitudes to work more ambitious and we're I think slightly less risk averse than we were I think we're bolder and um, I think that's something about the space around us are there any examples of that that you can think of where you've you know you've done something differently because you've been here so I think there's things like um 
there's a lot to do with our relationships with other people with our stakeholders volunteers artists um work closely with our artists developing new work in the outdoors for predominantly for families but not always um and we'd commissioned work before when we were working indoors working in an office and we'd have um commission a new piece of work meet the artists maybe go to their workshop have a couple of phone calls but it, there was always a distance between what they were doing and our involvement and I think that that has completely transformed with being here because people can come here spend time in the woods develop their work here but also from their point of view what is surprising to lots of people is lots of work that's created for street theatre or outdoor art is actually made indoors and sometimes the first time it's outdoors is when it's first performed which seems mad um and so the kind of depth and authenticity of the work that's coming out of our commissioning process has just changed massively yeah and there's something about the space and the time because you're not sitting with a laptop in front of you and you haven't got like a tight schedule or an agenda in front Mm. of you there's something much more free flowing about having a meeting sitting around a campfire you know (laughs) that that actually it's more of a conversation and more of an exploratory process rather than a kind of this is what we're going to achieve out of this and that's definitely so we have lots of volunteers who work for us and they um uh previous used to come onto our events and it was quite a fleeting experience that they'd have with us i mean they'd work like dogs all (laughs) all weekend and then and then creator experience (laughs) yes that that as as well (laughs) but now they can come here and have like camping weekends in advance and we can get to know them and we can get to know their motivations for volunteering and we can give more back and it's much more of a relationship isn't it yeah which means that then uh when we're looking at kind of uh looking for new producers or programmers or to build our pool of, of people that we work with then we kind of know already from our cohort of volunteers who might be interested in being developed and doing some training and it just feels like a really nice organic process yeah. whereas before it was a little bit more yeah, yeah. Like Sarah said fleeting and some of those networks that we're in we're in loads of networks <laughs> um whether that's like outdoor arts networks or family theater networks or and and i know there was um We've been meeting in the same kind of uh, theatre venues and office spaces and stuff for years. And then when we moved here and invited some of those networks to come and sit around the campfire and have an overnight. And it, we'd had very similar conversations ongoing for years, you know, where you come round to the very same things. And I think bringing those conversations here, it changed it changed everybody's perspective and people it felt like a new conversation because it was outdoors mm. it felt like there were new relationships developed like things went off and on on a different tangent and yeah there was a, a very definite sense that it it felt really different to talk yeah in, in that space than it did you in don't a you don't want to say blue sky thinking because it's <laughs> but it is kind of like it feels like there are less restrictions because mm. it's literally a blue sky. Yeah. Occasionally. People dream, a, <laughs> people dream a little bit more when they're yeah, outdoors, I think they though, do, don't yeah. they? You think, yeah, they yeah. dream sure. bigger by yeah. being yeah. in this space. Absolutely. They yeah. think bigger. Yeah. yeah, and I think from our point of view, I think it's interesting because I think what, like Sarah was saying, things felt more possible. And I think part of that is that we, because we did this, because we said we were in an office and then we were talking about how we wanted to work in a woodland and now we're working in a woodland i think the process that's come about people kind of feel like that i don't know that it that kind of shift is quite a big deal and a big i don't know a big that you need a certain kind of opportunity or tons of money or i don't know some lots of things to happen to to be able and actually i think one of the reasons why we think things are more possible is because we've kind of done this and it felt oh actually we just did this Mm. one Mm. of the things we talk about quite a lot is that you kind of 
have an idea or a, a ambition like we had to move and start working outdoors you just start talking about it and start talking to people about it all the time and the more you talk about it the more you believe it's going to happen because the more you're telling other people so you become convinced and it becomes instead of becoming kind of like a up in the air thing that might happen one day potentially 20 years down the line it becomes something that might happen in six months yeah and we start talking between us about the day in which it, at which it will happen it will yeah. happen and it becomes a more tangible thing. and just think i mean here it was a case of you know we talk about the horse box that we wanted and we wanted it to be we were quite specific there was a nice wooden body it needs to look beautiful vintage um and we were talking about that and then someone who does the teepees for the festival we were talking about it to them and they were like oh i've got a horse box just like that and we were like oh that's great but we've got no money and he was like oh that's fine i want to get rid of it give me a bit now give me a bit later we'll do it in installments and it just feels like you create a bit of momentum i've heard this from other people as well actually this idea that if you if you believe something is going to happen or you tell yourself and you tell other people it's going to happen yeah. and you just you almost act as if it is going to happen then it happens there's a, <laughs> it does yeah happen. there's a there's a natural momentum mm. and if it's a good idea and you talk about it enough then there will be other people who will come on board with it who will help you make it happen as well i think that's one of the things that we yeah. say to our volunteers is if you've got an idea and it's a good idea and the more you talk about it the more you hone it down to the nub of like mm. actually what, what, it is, what really yeah. works about it then other people, if it is a good idea, will get on board and help yeah, you sure. make that, you know, become a reality. And as soon as, as soon as, almost as soon as you've got one under your belt, mm. as soon as you've done that, gone through that process once, then you just think, well, then anything's possible, isn't it? <laughs> What's next? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, but definitely. It, there's a, there's a sense that actually we we can make things happen. Yeah. And in episode six, I spoke to the public relations guru Andrew Block. And he told me about the early days of the company he co-founded, Frank PR. There was three of us um, when we started. Um, and the third um, person um, stayed for about four years, roughly, and, and left um, after having her third kid. Um, and so there was the three of us. We... We were in an office which we'd basically done a deal to swap PR for rent. And we were, <laughs> it was with a company which was a spin off from Telstar, which was called Startle. And what they'd done, it, it was essentially was Spotify, but before the world was ready for Spotify. And they'd archived every single hit record in the top 40 since the top 40 began and they were digitalizing it and monetizing it and we had these state-of-the-art offices which to this day the technology was better than the technology that um we have now um and unfortunately after about nine months we walked in to find receivers kind of removing desks and computers and pcs and that was the end of startle and that was the end of our time in, in their office. And then we relocated um, to Chalk Farm and then later on to Camden, um, which is where we are now. And so what happened then in terms of getting your first clients and who were those first clients and how did they come about? First clients were friends and family. And I think, you know, when you start a business, there's a lot of favours you need to pull and you, you kind of, go everywhere and tap up everyone you can and hope that people will have faith in you and support you. But um, our first two clients was Graham's brother-in-laws who had a shop fittings business called Shop Fittings Direct and a friend of mine who had an online 
um, teddy bear company called Bluefoot Bear Company, the mail order company for teddy bears. So those were our first two clients, and that was kind of how we got started. And then a few months in, we got introduced, um, long story, but to Amstrad, which was Lord Sugar's business at the time. Mm. Um, and we did a pitch, which we won. Um, and we, Amstrad, and which you know, now has sort of evolved into Lord Sugar and his sort of various businesses and apprentice winners has, you know, has been a client of ours since that kind of day, 17 odd years ago. Um, and we kind of built from there. And after about a year, we had the opportunity, we got asked to pitch for grill cream. Um, and that was our big break, really. We were, it was the first kind of household name brand that we'd had the chance to go for. And we were up against, you know, some of the best names in the industry. And we went for it and we won it. And I think for us, that was a real turning point. It showed that a brand would trust us to look after them and it gave other brands the the chance to kind of see well if they've gone for them maybe we could too and then from there on it just built and built what was it about that brill cream pitch do you think that made you stand out i think when you're young and small you have to play to your strengths and your strengths are hunger passion desire you know, they knew how important it would be for our business and in turn how much effort and energy we would put put into it. Not that we don't put effort and energy into things now, but it's a different sort of energy. And, you know, we've always been about bold, disruptive, creative ideas. And that was the approach we took for Brookroom. And, you know, I won't bore you with the details of what we pitched, but I can still remember what we pitched to them. And it was challenging to their thinking and I think it was that combination of youth and hunger and appetite for the business combined with you know some quite different thinking that was probably very different to the standard responses that they'd received from more established and renowned agencies. (laughs) 